0: is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm
1: Chris Edens. And today for Charles Feldman, blue blobs, yeah, blue blobs washing up on the beaches of Southern California. We'll go in-depth into what they are and why they're here.
0: The Justice Department trying to uh, put a hold on that abortion drug ruling that came out of Texas. We'll look at whether that's going to work. Also, more business owners choosing to hire older workers over younger ones. Finally! And we'll explore the reasons why. Okay, we're going to start with those blue
1: jelly-like blobs they're washing up on our local beaches. Nate Jaros is an expert on jellyfish and similar type creatures. Uh, He's with the Aquarium of the Pacific in Long Beach. Nate, thank you for taking some time for us. First of all, what exactly are these blue blobs?
2: Uh, Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me. These blue blobs are called by-the-wind sailors. They're jellyfish relative called a a hydrozoan Um, they're all part of the of the family nidaria nidarians include jellyfish sea anemones uh, hydrozoans. they're largely just these simple stinging um, organisms there's over 3,700 species of hydrozoans uh, most of which have what they call um, indirect development that means that when males and females reproduce they don't produce another thing that looks like the male and the female they produce a kind of a new thing and this In this case, it's a it's a polyp that lives usually attached to the bottom of most of these species. They live attached to the bottom. Um, But the by the wind sailor is an open ocean species where there isn't really much contact with the bottom of the ocean. So what they do is they created a float where their polyps live. They basically hang upside down and they they kind of drift around with the wind as a sail.
0: Well, that's just weird.
2: Yeah, it's it's a really weird evolutionary uh strategy. It's uh, it's not unlike it's not like many other animals. So right. they, uh yeah, they do produce males and females from this kind of floating colonial raft. And uh those are small pulsing uh medusae as they call them, very similar to their cousin the jellyfish. And uh they they swim around and, and reproduce, and when they reproduce, they produce another one of these floating by the wind sailors.
1: What do we need to know about them? Are there there any dangers that we should know about if you get too close to one?
2: No, I mean, they do have stinging cells um, like any other nadarian, but they're just not strong enough to, to bother most people. That said, if you handle one, if you pick one up at the beach, um, and you touch your eyes or your mouth, uh, there is a possibility of it being irritating. So it's not advised to do that. Um, but generally, they really don't pose much uh, much of a threat to people.
0: Yeah. And you know what What I found weird was uh, hearing the stories about this, people uh, not knowing what this is. They see it washing up on the beach. Uh, it's a blue thing. What blue stuff? What is this? And people saying, I don't know what that is. Let me go touch it.
2: Right. Exactly. That's our nature, right? As people, they see, they to touch it and feel it and see what it is. Um, in this case, yeah, it might be slimy, it might be gross, especially if it's been di- dead on the beach for a while, but it, it really isn't going to pose much of a risk. Um, they, they are uh, it isn't uncommon for the spring and early summer for for these uh, mashed beach strandings of this uh, species. Um, they just come uh, come on shore with a, with the onshore wind that are typical during this this time of year. So uh, in many cases they wash ashore by the millions or even billions um, from Southern California all the way up the coast.
1: Well, I was going to ask you how do they get here, and I guess you have more or less explained that now. But are, so these creatures are out there, uh, out in the middle of the ocean, and it's just certain times of the year they'll get pushed into shore, right?
2: Yeah, I mean that's I mean their name implies they uh, they are by the wind sailors, and they uh, they just move with the wind currents. So they uh, they'll go with the prevailing wind, and um, without any control of their own, they'll just be washed up into shore in many cases, like we're seeing right now.
0: And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Nate uh, Jarros, expert on jellyfish, these blue uh, blue blobs, <laughs> which is a great name for a band. Yeah, I think, I'm think steal so. that. The blue blobs. <laughs> the blue blobs. Uh, washing up on the shore. So, yeah, yeah. if you see something strange and uh, unknown and you don't know what it is, maybe uh, kind of curtail that thought of, like, I'm going to go touch it. Yeah. Uh, just leave it alone. <laughs>
1: The Justice Department filing a request with an appeals court to try to put a hold in the ruling by a judge in Texas last week, a ruling that eliminated FDA approval of a long-used abortion drug. Mary Ziegler is a reproductive rights expert at UC Davis School of Law. She's also the uh, author of the book, Roe, the History of a National Obsession. Mary, thank you for taking some time with us today. We've already had a Washington state judge pull back part of the ruling uh, affecting some states. Do you think there's a good chance that a, a further hold will be put on this ruling?
3: I mean, I would like to think so because the FDA has really been put in an impossible position. They've been asked essentially on the one hand to, uh, you know, treat Mifepristone as an unapproved drug, on the other hand, to guarantee access in 17 states in Washington, D.C. So you would think that we would get a hold in, in the meantime until the FDA and the rest of us can sort out what's going on.
0: I understand part of the objection to the drug uh, uh, from this judge is the idea that it was uh, not properly vetted and that there are safety concerns about it. But as I look into the figures, I discover that there's another drug that the FDA approved uh, some time ago uh, that is uh, twice as deadly as mifepristone, uh, whereas I I think uh, there were one per, if I'm not mistaken, one per 100,000 deaths attributed to mifepristone, but uh, this other drug had two. So, you know, technically twice as deadly, and that drug was Viagra. So when the argument is made that we we want to pull approval for this drug because it's not safe, that also flies in the face of the fact that it's been in use for some, uh, it's been approved 23 years ago.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's really unprecedented. And if you can bring this kind of challenge for mifepristone, the the message I think that's being sent is that if someone doesn't like the science and doesn't like the FDA's resolution of a matter, they can simply find one judge that agrees with them and try to get the approval yanked, and I, I think that's one reason we've seen Pfizer and other drug manufacturers weigh in to say this this shouldn't be the way this outcome is ultimately handled.
1: So it starts in Texas with one judge there, Washington State. Another judge weighs in on it as well. Uh, in the end, is this the case that will eventually be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court?
3: I think that's almost inevitable. Um, we can't. It's it's untenable for FDA to be under countervailing orders like this. Um, I think this case was designed to get to the U.S. Supreme Court by uh, the Conservative Alliance for Freedom that brought it. Uh, and I, I think ultimately that they're going to get their wish insofar as the U.S. Supreme Court is, go- is going to get involved.
4: Uh,
0: what's your uh, prediction if this does go to the Supreme Court? I mean, you know, in the past, uh, uh, some people would... Uh, presume that the court will take the conservative approach and by conservative i mean not upset the apple cart too much but uh this the makeup of this court is a little different this time and they have shown a willingness uh in the roe v wade ruling to kind of overturn that apple cart do you think they'll do that uh with this and uphold a national ban on this abortion medication
3: I mean, I'm I'm torn because on the one hand, you have in some ways a case that was tailor made for the Supreme Court because it exploits both the justices hostility to Mifepristone and um, their hostility to the administrative state and in agencies like the FDA. On the other hand, this case is just beset with problems. The plaintiffs probably don't have standing. The statute of limitations has probably expired like there is with this as a vehicle. And so really, there's a question here of whether there are kind of any boundaries to what this U.S. Supreme Court is willing to uphold when it comes to abortion. And if uh, this court is going to draw the line anywhere or if instead, when it comes to abortion, it's going to be no holds barred.
1: Mary, as a reproductive rights expert uh, at UC Davis uh, School of Law, as an expert, how concerned are you about the future of or? what we've seen so far and what we're seeing right now about the future of women's rights uh, when it comes to this issue in this country?
3: I'm I'm very concerned. I mean, I think one thing that uh, not everybody paid attention to in Judge Kaczmarek's ruling was that one of the rationales he used was a a not very well-known law called the Comstock Act from the 19th century that he was saying amounted to a national ban on abortion. A key thing to note is that if that that kind of ruling was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court. It would apply in California. It would apply in New York. It would apply regardless of what voters want. And that, that it's concerning to me that we're starting to see federal courts essentially saying, you know, we're going to issue for regardless of what the Constitution says. And I think that that's that's something we should all be concerned about.
0: All right. One last question before we go. You know, there's some uh, comments have been made that uh, that the Biden administration should just, if this ruling is upheld, should just ignore it. If uh, if that is the uh, course they take, uh, can they do that? And if they did, what would happen?
3: Well, I think there's a difference between ignoring it and the FDA using what's called its enforcement discretion. Um, if you think about it, the FDA is kind of like a prosecutor in the sense that if a drug is unapproved. There are lots of drugs people are out there that are using that are not approved, and the FDA has to decide how it's going to use its limited time and resources. So the Biden administration could say, you know what, yes, the U.S. Supreme Court has said this drug is unapproved. We acknowledge that, but we don't have an infinite amount of time and money to enforce the FDA's rules. We're not going to prioritize going after people who dispense mifepristone because we think it's safe and effective. I think that is an option on the table because the FDA does have limited time, um, I think ignoring the ruling is a different question. I think the FDA uses its discretion all the time. That would not be uh, unprecedented or illegal. Um, I think it, whatever happens, it underscores the importance of, of the 2024 presidential election because we would expect a very different response from FDA if, for example, you had a president, Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump in office.
0: All right. Thanks so much uh, for joining us today. Mary Ziegler, a reproductive rights expert at the UC Davis School of Law. Right now, though, the Pentagon and national security agencies are reviewing how they share secrets after the leak online of some highly classified documents dealing with things like the war in Ukraine. Uh, Mike Glenn is the Pentagon reporter for The Washington Times. Mike, thank you so much for uh, joining us today.
4: It's my pleasure, and yes, younger workers are too lazy. (laughs) (laughs) There you go.
0: Send your angry emails, too, Uh, although the younger generation might not know what emails are. Uh, So anyway, so about these uh, Pentagon uh, uh, leaks here, uh, how dangerous are these leaks? Because as I understand it, it does uh, purport to detail some of the spying operations that we have running against Russia right now. Is that putting any personnel in danger?
4: Well, it's dangerous enough to cause some of the people in this building to run around with their hair on fire. But, uh, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it is is—it is potentially uh, – pro- it's definitely, you know, problematic to use it over this sort of tired word because uh, it does – it has a, uh, a, a number of issues that, that are really of concern. Um, it reveals the level of which the U.S. has penetrated Russia's – intelligence and military establishment and obviously that penetration comes as a result of somebody there and it puts them in danger but they know uh you know that the russians now know that we know you know part of what they're doing it's also uh, uh indicating some weakness in ukraine's uh defense which is putting them in danger that uh you know, because it's showing that there might be some air defense issues that they have to deal with, you know, uh as they prepare for this counteroffensive. So there's definitely – I mean, assuming this is real, and they, they're not – they they won't say one way or the other, but pretty much sort of under the table, everybody assumes it's real uh, to to the greatest extent, all um I mean, it's really causing a lot of problems here in the building and uh, with with our uh, our allies, the U.S. allies and and partners involved in the Ukraine mission.
1: And, Mike, the fact that this this wasn't any kind of a cyber attack, but actually someone who walked out the door at the Pentagon with the documents. Just how concerning is that?
4: Yeah, that's you know, this is it's very and it is old fashioned sort of spycraft. Uh, you get a document, you fold it up, stick it in your sock or something. Or something like that, and walk out. I mean, it comes. It's it comes from. They they think it comes. It is a briefing document for the joint staff. The joint staff here in this building, here in the Pentagon, are the to- very very top leadership. General Milley, the chairman of Joint Chiefs, and people on his level. Uh, and it's usually uh, the briefing documents that they receive pretty much every day. Uh, About the the sort of the the ongoing status of the of the war in Ukraine and the fact that uh, I mean, you know, there's only a limited number of people that are supposed to have access to this to this document. The fact that somebody within that sort of a distribution list uh, apparently is passing it around online now, uh, you know, motive is, you know, you won't know why. Until you learn, until they learn who, you know, uh, and how, you know, how it got uh, uh, released. And the fact, yeah, the, the, it, it's it's apparently causing some of the people here uh, to really try to find a way to clamp down on right distribution
0: so mike given that they are climbing down obviously this this leak does cause some concern but is there also a possibility that uh what is being uh what leaked documents are being shared have been altered in some way to uh provide some dis- information that would help our enemies like to like to claim for example that we're sending more stuff to ukraine than we really are to make it look like we're really uh neck deep in this
4: right i think I mean, we are sending a pretty good amount of. Uh, of 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 uh, equipment and weapons over there, regardless of of how this information is getting, you know, however it's altered. I mean, the alter. I think it's more sort of just sort of stirring the pot than uh, than the very fact. I mean, the, I, I you know, more critical is the fact that this information is out there, and you know, then if they're you know altering a number one way or the other, but the, the you know the very fact. Somebody, you know, decided to release it, somebody with access to it, you know, and that person who has has access to it is.
0: All right. Uh, I think we lost uh, Mike a little bit there, but uh, we got the gist of what he was talking about. here a dangerous leak information. Obviously, he tells us that uh, some people are at the Pentagon running around with their hair on fire. He's a Pentagon reporter for The Washington Times.
1: You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Rob Archer, I'm Chris Eatons.
0: Uh Car companies might have no choice soon, but the boost to electric car production, the EPA reportedly considering emission standards that could make up uh, to two-thirds of new passenger vehicles sold in the U.S. electric by the year 2032. Larry Prince, executive
1: editor with the, De- the DetroitBureau.com, which covers the automotive world. And Larry joins us now on In-Depth. Thank you for taking some time for us today. First of all, can you explain what these new standards are that the EPA is considering?
5: Well, it's, it's very basic, um, and it's exactly what you said. They're demanding that up to two-thirds of all new vehicles sold, cars, trucks, minivans, SUVs, be battery electric powered by 2032. Um, This comes uh, is a much more aggressive target than a similar ban in Europe, which would start in 2035. But it brings with it um, quite a few problems. And uh, I don't don't think all of them have really been thought through by the EPA.
0: So are they doing this too fast, do you think?
5: Yes, just because there are a lot of issues. Let's just start with the fact that Automakers are already having problems getting the essential components for the battery electric vehicles they're currently building. Battery electric vehicles are only 6% of the market right now, and they can't get enough components. And China dominates mining, material processing, cell components, battery cells, and EV production. So just getting the U.S. industry up to where we can compete is going to take a while. And then there are a lot of infrastructure issues that really haven't been thought through very well at all. Um, And now I know, you know, listeners, I'm in Florida, but listeners in California certainly have had to deal with rolling brownouts or blackouts or issues of not having enough electricity. It's expected that in order to expand the high-voltage transmission towers 10 percent by 2030, which will be needed, the cost will be somewhere around $40 billion, and that's just high-voltage transmission. That's not talking about the permits and right-of-ways that need to be granted or the environmental studies that have to be done. It's also not taking into account all the step-down power upgrades that have to be done so that once the power is, say, sent to your neighborhood, it can then get to your house. Then, of course, who pays for the transmission into your house or business because that has to be upgraded too, and that's thousands upon thousands of dollars. And that's for a house. We're not talking about the 40% of America that lives in an apartment building. None of this has been really well thought through, in my estimation.
1: Well, Larry, let me ask you this, then, getting to the point where we as a country can compete when it comes to this, is there a more realistic timetable being bantied about amongst people in the automotive world about when this would more make more sense to, to come out?
5: Certainly, um, it's been very quietly stated by a number of people at a number of different automakers from all over the world that they see these hard and fast deadlines being pushed back once we get closer to them. You have to keep in mind, it will take a car company five years to design a vehicle from scratch. Um, A lot of car companies, such as Toyota, for instance, have yet to sell a car with an exclusive electric platform. They have typically, by and large, just been gussying up gas-powered cars and trans- you know, making them into electric cars, rather than using a dedicated platform. That's not to say that dedicated platforms aren't coming, but it's going to take at least five years. Well, they're already designing cars for 2028, and the deadline's 2032. Um, to have to stop now and rip up all the plans and start it over is an enormous undertaking. The last time the government... Um, dictated such an enormous change in the automotive fleet, which was the fuel economy standards in the 70s. You know, two of our three automakers almost went bankrupt. Well, one did go bankrupt. Uh, Ford almost went bankrupt. And AMC ceased to exist. So this is a huge cost, and I don't think the full implications have been thought through.
0: Uh, Larry, uh, you have a good point on that, but uh, also uh, just the other night, I was uh, scrolling through some videos on YouTube, and I found this video from the 90s, and they were talking about the future of computing, and they said that soon after the year 2000, we're going to be wearing our computers, and they were showing off these designs of the things that goes around your neck, and you wear like a vest, and it's your computer, and you pull out a keyboard, and you type on it. I mean, lo and behold, hold when we got to that future we didn't we weren't wearing our computers we had them in our pockets you know with smartphones because they just did not foresee that that so-called breakthrough now isn't it possible that we are approaching some breakthroughs in battery technology EV car technology but then the drawback is as you say they've already got plans on the drawing boards for 2028 but are we do you think that we're close to some more breakthroughs in battery and EV technology that we maybe uh, haven't Taken into account yet?
5: Most definitely. I mean, the big one is solid-state battery technology, and that could be a real game changer as far as some of the issues that I mentioned. The other thing is, you do have some car companies in Europe pushing to use e-fuels, and e-fuel is certainly a technology that is coming, where they use um, clean energy to produce, you know, artificial carbon-based fuels. The um, it still produces some pollution, but a lot less than gasoline. Volkswagen Group, through its Porsche division, and BMW in particular, are working on these fuels. And actually, a plant is being set up right now in Chile to produce such fuels and use them for racing or aircraft. So there are technologies coming that could limit some of the problems. The, but the biggest problem is we've already put a hard and fast deadline in place. Now, it's just a law. It can be repealed. Um, so I imagine that it will be repealed because I live in an apartment building and I don't know where I'm going to plug in. There, is, there are no plugs here and I live in a, battery, a mm. battery charging desert. Yeah,
0: there you go. All right, thank you, uh, Larry. Larry Prince, uh, executive uh, editor with the DetroitBureau.com.
1: Working for a living, there has always been a divide between younger and older generations. No
0: different these days, especially when it comes to the workplace. And a lot of businesses right now, they're hiring older workers rather than younger ones. Here explain why this is happening is Jessica Kriegel, a workplace expert at Culture Partners, and Kip Comforty. He owns two package shipping stations in Pennsylvania, recently recruited uh, some older workers. Uh, Kip, I'll begin with you. Uh, Tell us why you think the older workers are a better deal for you you than uh, younger ones
6: well in a nutshell the the work ethic that I have seen and what is displayed is I don't want to say far superior but older employees get it work starts at nine you're there at 10 too. if at your end of your shift there's a little extra help needs to get done you're not punching and running out um, I've been at this 19 years. I've, I don't want to say struggled, but you are prisoner to your employees. And I had an opportunity about, oh, about a year and a half ago, somebody approached me and I took a shot at it. And it's been one of the best moves I've made.
1: Okay, Jessica, let's bring you into the conversation now as well. Uh, As a workplace expert, other than experience, obviously, what, in your opinion, do older people bring to a job that younger people simply don't?
7: Well, I would challenge the question, frankly, and and caution us to be careful about stereotyping based on age, because that's something that the whole generation's dynamic has been doing for many years now. Millennials are this way and baby boomers are that way, but that's often not true. It's not based in research anyway. It's often based in perception. And so, I mean, a question I would ask is, are you telling these older people when you're interviewing them about this strategy that you've employed because you see value in older people? If so, I could see why that would probably be a motivator, It would be a positive experience for them and feeling valued and something that would make them want to take the job seriously. I don't think it's just because older people work harder. That's just too broad and, and probably not true at a, at a, at a macro level.
0: And you know, historically, older generations always look back to younger generations and say, you know, they're not as uh, they're not as hard workers as we were, and we had to we had to march March through a mile of snow, snow. uh, five miles, and it was ten miles to get back home in a blizzard. And uh, you know, so there's there's that too. But Kip, now you said that that for you, your perception is that uh, your older workers are a, a more benefit for you, and 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 Jessica says that might be a bit of a stereotype. Uh, How do you respond to that? Do you think it's just a stereotype, or or do you think you could point at some hard and fast things that prove the case to you?
6: It is. It is just. Well, I'm going to say this. I think cell phones, in general, although they are a great thing to have, uh, they seem to become more of the younger workers' everyday everything. If it is not within reach, if it's not looked at every three minutes. It's, it's a, it is something that has kind of taken over a certain segment and and having three children, I I see it. And I try to tell them to put them down, engage people. There's, there's, there's just less uh, communication with uh, some of my younger employees. And again, I've been at this for a while um, and I've never really, tapped into the older population segment looking for a retired person. I've never really looked to capture that, as I said, until one was brought to me and I was in the need and I said, yeah, that'd be great. And it worked out wonderful. And then the next person I looked to hire, um, I had an opportunity to get another person that was out of place for 35 years was looking and hired him. And it's been fantastic. I mean, I, I again, I don't want to pigeonhole every young person. Do I have young people that work for me that are fantastic? Absolutely. It's just they're very few and far between. And, again, these are the people that are coming in front of me. You know, I'm not curing cancer. I'm not. I have a retail business. Um, I'm looking for a very certain type of worker. Um, You know, the skill set doesn't have to be too crazy. I'm just looking for somebody to be able to communicate with the customer, look them in the eye, thank them when they're done greet them hello when they come in. And it's the, the older worker population for me for the past year and a half has been a home run.
1: Well, Jessica, let me ask you this. Could it be maybe that in certain professions, uh, older workers maybe excel more than younger workers? And maybe you take some jobs up in Silicon Valley, younger workers would excel much more at that than hiring an older person?
7: I still think we're stereotyping which is dangerous because what I would fear for Kip is that you're sending the message that young people don't thrive here as much as older people and what will that do to your recruitment efforts in the future for people that aren't in that older demographic and you were right what you said earlier I mean, Socrates, 2,500 years ago, was complaining about young people in his writing saying they value chatter in the place of hard work. It's literally the same complaint we've had for 2,500 years as people. And many of these differences we're noticing are actually life stage issues and not generational dynamics. If you dig into the data about the differences, even data around technology use and adoption, it's not as different as people think. Uh, loyalty to employers. It's not as different as people think. Many of those things have to do with a life stage. If you've got older workers closer to retirement, have higher stakes for their financial future, that may create differences in behavior rather than young people who still have 50 years to save up for retirement.
0: All right. uh, Thank you very much, Uh, Jessica Kriegel, workplace expert at Culture Partners. Kip uh, Comforty owns uh, two package shipping stations in uh, Pennsylvania, recently recruited some older workers there. He seems happy about that. Of course, the warning from Jessica is don't stereotype. Right. But uh, if you, you know uh it's just it's so much easier for the older generation you were in to look back at the younger generation and say look at you kids always looking at your phones and yada yada and everything but then but that said we have done this story on the year before where there are members of the younger generation who want to get away from their phones and so they're getting not smartphones but Dumb phones, like the old phones that that will only make phone calls. They can't browse the Internet, (laughs) and they they want to get away from this. Mm -hmm. So I think Jessica has a very good point that Mm -hmm. you want to be careful about stereotyping. Mm -hmm. Well, that's going to do it for In-Depth today. Thank you so much for listening. We'll uh, do it again tomorrow at 1 p.m.